Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us, along with critics Amy Nicholson, who's film writer for the New York Times and host of the podcast Unspooled. Andy Klein is reviewer for AV Club. They're going to tell us, uh, first of all, about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It seems like we've been waiting for this one for years. Tom Cruise, of course, is back. Christopher McQuarrie is the director and the co-screenwriter with Eric Gendrison. Amy, what did you think of the new Mission Impossible? Well, I will say that, like a motorcycle leaping off a mountain, this film has very high highs and very low lows. The action scenes, the stunt scenes... They're incredible. They're about as good as any movie has ever, ever, ever done. You get the sense wow. that this movie has been like, we've all seen hundreds of car chases. We've seen hundreds of cliff plunges and speeding trains. We're going to figure out how to do ours better. Not even just bigger, but like better. You know, and so much of that is on Tom Cruise's performance inside the action scenes. You know, looking kind of like he's flailing, looking a little bit nervous. But anytime the stunts are not happening, I just kept thinking, wow, this dialogue and exposition is so badly written so badly staged, how are these by the same guys with such a great attention to detail? It doesn't make any sense at all. Every time they have to actually get into the plot, everything stops and it's like six characters in a room trading off lines, like it's a rehearsed musical number, like they're in Boys <laughs> to Men or something. It doesn't make any sense at all. But, whatever. I kind of feel like I should get into the plot a little bit, but then I also sort of feel like, who cares? Because I'm not sure if anybody remembers any of the plots of any of them. I certainly don't. No. Is, is, there, is there an impossible mission? There is an impossible mission, and you'll be surprised to learn that Ethan Hunt goes rogue. Oh, no. Uh, but here, like, the big bad is actually kind of interesting. It's like the sentient AI overlord who can control uh -oh. everything. And it is a computer, so you can't really rationalize with it. And it helps kind of make the spycraft a little more interesting. You know, because since Jason Bourne, we've seen a million movies where it's like, oh, we've got the cameras on every corner and we can see where he's walking. But here, because the AI is in charge, the AI can be lying to you, putting fa false faces onto the cameras Ouch. and really sending people on, on these like rabbit escape hatches. So that's all really good. Um, I would say like I was rolling my eyes every time people talked, but really as soon as the action started, especially the last couple set pieces, I could have rolled right into the sequel from there immediately. I was so happy. So good on that. Good on that for this movie. We're talking about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Uh, it's rated PG-13. It opens in select theaters on Monday and then goes into wide release on Wednesday, July 12th. Now, Dead Reckoning Part 2 comes out a year from now, so you will have to wait uh, to get that <laughs> continuous experience, Amy. And next week, uh, Amy will be joining me for an interview with Wade E. Eastwood, who is the stunt coordinator and second unit director, talking about those incredible stunts. That's next week on Film Week on LAist 89.3. Biosphere, a sci-fi comedic drama, stars Sterling K. Brown and Mark Duplass. Uh, the film is directed by Mel Eslin. Uh, Duplass and Eslin collaborated on the screenplay. Andy, what did you think of Biosphere? I saw it as Duplass brothers movies go this was pretty good even though neither of them directed it they both produced and i find mark duplass to be a really likable screen presence the hook here is that duplass is unbelievably the president of the united states who has managed in 14 months to screw everything up so that the entire planet's been destroyed except for this biosphere where he is now living with his longtime best friend, who was one of his advisors and is a, a, a science genius, played by Sterling K. Brown. And it's very clear that Mark Duplass's character is kind of an idiot 
it's also very clear which party it suggests he belongs to, but let's not. Uh, but it's a big deal when when his his roommate friend wonders whether he knew that he was registered Democrat. Uh, but anyway, these two guys are stuck here, and they sort of have you know ways to create food. They have a fish tank, but then the fish start dying. And everything is dark outside. And it just looks like these are the last two guys on Earth. And this is the end of civilization. And then in a somewhat magical process, they start gender bending. And first, the fish, one of the fish, they have two male fish left. And one of them starts converting to female, which apparently is not totally unprecedented in you know, in the realm of all beings, that they can switch genders. And then, of course, that becomes extended to the those two guys, which brings up this whole interesting thing of, are you going to be able to, to kiss and make love to your best friend for, you know, your best male buddy for all these years? It's yeah. pretty funny. It's actually very involving, partly because both performances are so good. There's nobody else in the film. What do you think, uh, Amy? Yeah, the performances are incredible. I was really knocked out by them, especially by Sterling K. Brown. Plus, is kind of a little Will Ferrell and Saturday Night Livey, a touch at the beginning. Um, but he works himself into these emotional fits, Sterling does. You know, like he's telling stories about their childhood and he's welling up with tears. He's getting angry and sort of lifting weights mid-conversation when he can't handle the emotions that are happening. And all of this is actually really grounded for a plot that sounds as outrageous as, as Andy just set up. Like, it sounds like a skit, but it's played really emotionally. And I was impressed that in this dynamic between the two men, it's not Sandlery. It's not like the dumb version of this that you're mm -hmm. expecting. Like, there's layers upon layers upon layers of the emotions they're going through in reconciling this. And there are conversations in this movie and setups and scenes that I have just never seen before on a screen. And I feel like the actors just win into it. I feel like the actors ultimately are kind of braver than the screenplay itself. Because at a point, the screenplay is like, I don't know what to do. And the film just ends. <laughs> but but watching them like watching them actually make this happen, I was really interested in There is sort of like a big metaphor over this. Like, here are two guys who are kind of responsible for ending the world, the two of them, you know? And even for these two guys, is there hope that they can literally change as people, literally, physically, but also emotionally, morally change as people? And I found that to be really moving. Mm -hmm. The film is Biosphere against darling Sterling K. Brown and Mark Duplass. Duplass co-wrote it with the director Mel Eslin. It's unrated. You can see it at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. and at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in downtown Los Angeles. Joy Ride, the comedy stars Stephanie Hsu, Ashley Park, Sherry Cola, Sabrina Wu. Adele Lim is the director, uh, and uh, the film is also written by women. So this is uh, pretty much an all-female production. Amy, what do you think of Joy Ride? Yeah, it's an all-female production that's also produced by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, who kind of layer a little bit of a hangover template on the story of like four friends having this madcap adventure through china it's the thing where like the four friends are all different sides of personalities you have like audrey who's this uptight lawyer she's adopted into a white family uh you have her like kind of slacker best friend you have this um actress who's played by stephanie sue she like is acting in um chinese soap operas and then you have just very weird k-pop fan whose name is deadeye and so these four girls are going through china just having these you know raunchy wild adventures that i actually enjoyed a lot this movie is a ton of fun just on a very dumb fun stupid level where at one point the girls wind up in a hotel that's full of basketball players and they all have romps very 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 fun intense romps and nobody has to apologize for them in the morning or anything uh former clipper baron davis is actually in that scene oh. yeah he's moving into acting there he goes um, I will say it does have that kind of formulaic thing at a while where you can just tell that it's a little bit copy and paste from like the structure of comedies like this that have done really well. And it also has that one weakness where the centerpiece character is the most boring one. You know, Audrey the lawyer and everything that she's going through emotionally. Everyone around her is a lot more fun to watch and her interior dilemma 
doesn't really carry as much weight as I think the film wants it to. It's a little bit, eh, who cares, ultimately at the end. But it's just great watching these ladies go around. And it's also really fun to see a movie where arguably the biggest name in the cast is Stephanie Sue, you know, who got the Oscar nomination for Everything Everywhere. Who wasn't so well known just a couple years ago. Exactly. And that's exciting. That's exciting for cinema. Joyride, comedy in white release. The film is rated R. Uh, next up on Film Week, The Lesson, which is a British thriller starring Daryl McCormack, Julie Delpy, and Richard E. Grant. Alice Truton is the director, and Alex McKeith, the screenwriter. Andy, what do you think of The Lesson? I liked The Lesson a lot. Uh, first of all, Richard E. Grant, ever since with ever since Withnell and I, I, you know, I'll go see the guy do anything, and he is in a different sort of manic mode here that only he can do, you know, his eyes like burn a hole through the screen practically. Uh, he's playing Britain's most famous novelist, and he hasn't written a book since his eldest son committed suicide, and they hire a young uh, black novelist who has not published yet, played by uh, Daryl McCormick, who comes to live with them and tutor their son so he can get into Oxford. Of course, there's all this interplay about the mentor novelist and the wannabe guy. And there's all sorts of romantic complications. And the family is totally dysfunctional. I mean, they're a total mess, and he is thrown into this situation. Uh Basically, it's it's sometimes a comedy. It is sometimes a thriller. I actually think of it more as a drama about these relationships. It's a thriller in that everybody behaves badly. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the hero who you're sympathetic to does some stuff that is just so over the line of what's acceptable. But you don't care because he's your protagonist and you love him. Uh, I, I thought this was uh, really entertaining. It It is not the most original story I've ever seen, yeah. but uh, uh, I, I thought it worked. It was sort of like The Servant in reverse or something. Interesting. And a first-time uh, director for a feature film. Amy, what do you think of the lesson? Yeah, I was also very excited for this because of the cast. Not just Grant, not just Julie yeah, Delby, sure. who plays his wife, but Daryl McCormick. He was in... Uh, a movie called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, a couple years ago with Emma Thompson, oh. where he played a sex worker that she hires. And the entire movie is the conversations between the two of them in this room. And he's kind of building this little specialty of being, you know, an intelligent working class man who keeps winding up in these situations where the people who've hired him are really testing his patience. And when this movie works really well, it's about kind of the unspoken rules of being the person there in this kind of gothic, really modern gothic estate, you know. <laughs> plants everywhere poisonous plants that are very <laughs> symbolic everything in this movie is very symbolic um kind of wandering through in the unspoken ways they use to put him in his place he's there as like kind of the intellectual cast but they do everything they can to cut him down i was very 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 on board with this until i just realized oh you're going to exactly the place i thought you're going all along and you're just going to go there really really slowly at the end then I got very frustrated. I was like, come on, come on. Give me something more than this. You're you're a little bit wasting this cast. But I'm going to see everything Daryl McCormick does because I think he's a very promising mm -hmm. young talent. Well, and it's so great to see Julie Delpy. In some, she seems yeah. so underused to me and uh, good in everything I see her in. And and she plays a character with lots of layers in this. In, uh, and again... Bad behavior all around. All right. Shame, shame on all of them. The lesson is the film. It's rated R and in select theaters. Uh, let's at least get started on Amanda, an Italian comedic drama that's written and directed by Carolina Cavalli. Uh, Amy, what do you think of Amanda? Yeah, Amanda is one of those character studies that's really all style. It's Italian. It's about this girl who is privileged and lonely and awkward and angry. I mean, she's essentially Harold without the mod. You know, she's sort of <laughs> looking for her mod throughout the entire film, but being really, really mean to everybody as she does it and being very fixated on things like, can I get enough store credit at the store to get a free fan? Why? She's rich. Who knows? Um, and she just sort of stomps around and snaps everybody. I, the film is so beautifully shot and so just like 
really stagily, gorgeously constructed that it feels a lot deeper than sometimes I think it is. You know, I got very impatient with this film as well. But the one thing that holds your attention is the lead actress, Benedetta Parcoli. She's astounding, and she makes you like it better than you should. We'll talk more about Amanda, Italian comedic drama. It's Film Week on L.A. is 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Amy Nicholson and Andy Klein. More reviews to come. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. Film Week on LAS 89.3. Larry Mantle joined by critics Andy Klein and Amy Nicholson. We just heard what Amy had to say about the Italian comedic drama Amanda. Andy, what did you think? I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I remember when Goonies came out and I went to see it and I thought, this is my idea of hell. To be trapped in a movie theater watching like a bunch of 10-year-old boys being jerks. I agree with you on Goonies. (laughs) Okay. I felt the same way on this film. You have two main characters who are both petulant, nasty, completely unlikable people. And yes, that's all very nicely observed, but I had not a second of sympathy for either of these people, either her or the ex-friend who she tries to make into her best friend again. Uh, so for me, it was kind of like being trapped in the cave with the adolescent boys. Amanda is unrated. You can see it this week at Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. And then next Friday, the 14th, it expands to several other of the Lemley locations. The Outlaws, an action comedy starring Adam Devine, Ellen Barkin, and Pierce Brosnan. Tyler Spindle, the director. The screenplay's written by Evan Turner and Ben Zazov. Andy, tell us about The Outlaws. Okay, this is, as the title suggests, it's kind of a riff on The In-Laws, which starred the now late lamented uh, Alan Arkin and Peter Falk. Um, It's basically a similar setup where you have one family that are kind of whiny suburbanites and their son, who's a very conventional bank manager, and he's getting married and her parents show up Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin, and uh, they are not that. (laughs) They are, in fact, very high adventure people. I'll I'll put it that way. Um, They rob banks, and he's a bank manager, and you can imagine what happens, but everybody is trying to rescue the bride who... Uh, they have an enemy who's kidnapped her and you have all these ridiculous scenes of of the bank manager turning into somebody else really, but not really. He's still a geek, incredible geek. And uh, it's a wonderful cast. Uh, Pierce Brosnan and Ellen Barkin, the other uh, parents are Julie Haggerty and Richard Kind, all of whom yeah. are just money in the bank. And uh, Michael Rooker, who we don't see much as the FBI agent. I thought this was a lot of fun. And as Netflix productions, you know, action comedies go, 
I thought this was one of the better ones. Well, that's good because they've had so many duds, so yeah. it's nice to have one that, that's stronger. The Outlaws is streaming on Netflix. It's rated R. The documentary The YouTube Effect tells us about the origins of uh, the site as well as Google's acquisition of it and about the algorithms which direct certain types of content to users. Uh, the film is directed by Alex Winter. Amy, what do you think of The YouTube Effect? Yeah, I mean, YouTube launched in 2005. It is 18 years old, maybe 19. My math is very bad, but that's astounding. <laughs> Happy birthday, YouTube. Uh, and that means that of its 2.6 billion users, there are people, many, many, many millions of people who have never known a world without YouTube. So this is a documentary really looking at the effect of it. Um, the strongest part to me, because I am a sucker for early early internet nostalgia, is this opening <laughs> sequence where you learn how YouTube built, You know, where we get a really good interview uh, with Stephen Chen. He's one of the original founders of it. And he's a guy who got his start making stuff like, you know, Hot or Not. Does anybody remember Hot or Not? Do, they, do you guys remember no. Hot or Not? I remember hearing about it. Oh, I spend way too much time on Hot or Not. People <laughs> just upload That's their own pictures. That's where you put a photo and people, and people react like, You're to hot it, or yeah. you're not. I and, wouldn't even dare. <laughs> <laughs> but so Steve Chen was like, this is fun using photos. What if we used videos of people? And I did not know that that was the origin of YouTube, which is now just so built into our life. All of that I love, but then in the second half, the film really gets to be about the litany of problems that have come about in the post-YouTube era. And all of this is really familiar, you know? Charleston and Gamergate and anti-vaxxers, our last president, and it kind of just goes through death all of threats those. And, death yeah. threats, yeah. And that part, it's kind of interesting, but you already know most of it, and nobody's quite sure what to do about it. You know, the big bad is the algorithm. Nobody really understands how the algorithm works. And they float some solutions, but it's hard to know what the real solution is here. But I will say that interviews in the film are very well chosen. You know, the young YouTubers who grew up in it are kind of having this fight for the soul of YouTube, including a guy named Caleb Kane who got radicalized into supremacy groups and now dedicates his energy to helping people use YouTube to help get you out of supremacy groups. And that's all really, really well done. We're talking about the documentary, The YouTube Effect. Andy? Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, my only complaint about the documentary really is that it should be a six-part PBS thing. I mean, it's much too big a topic for 90 minutes. Uh, but it's, it's, it's well done. Yes, the issues are familiar issues that are in the news constantly, but I still think it needed a uh, you know, a, a real concentrated look here. Uh, Alex Winter, who is best known as being either Bill or Ted, Bill, whichever yeah. one yeah. Keanu wasn't, <laughs> and who I'm fond of because his first directorial film, Freaked, was a big mess, but some of it was hilarious. He also did a Frank Zappa documentary, which oh, I, I really that. enjoyed. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I mean, he really is a good director, and... Uh, they assemble this stuff as well as can be done in, again, a 90-minute time slot, but definitely worth the time. The YouTube effect, the documentary, is unrated. It's at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in downtown Los Angeles, and we're just minutes away from a conversation with director Alex Winter and producer of the YouTube effect, Gail Ann Hurd. They join me in conversation in just a few minutes. Once Upon a Time in Uganda, a documentary uh, directed by Catherine Zubek. Amy? Yeah, this is another documentary about another film, another bunch of films. It's about the burgeoning film industry in Uganda, which people who love it call it Wakaliwood. It's a very, very small industry. In, in this documentary, the world we only see of it is the two main filmmakers, Isaac Nabwana and his wife Harriet, and then this American guy uh, whose name is Alan, who shows up. He's one of those New York kids who's like a film world everyman. He's program festivals, marketing, publicity, Jack of all trades. He's going through a breakup. He sees one of Isaac's action comedies, which are just done with so much charm and a lot of green screen and homemade props, that he just moves to Uganda and says, "How can I help the world know about these?" Um, the film is really fun at the very at the very beginning because it's like almost using action comedy video styles, tropes, lampoons. It opens in Kazakhstan with epic music and a screeching falcon. The reenactment of the first time that Alan goes to Uganda to try to find this filmmaker, they shoot that like an action movie. He's running through a market chasing this guy. But it does sort of fade away into like a lot of repetition and self-mythologizing about how the Uganda film industry is. Where it gets most interesting is kind of this one point where 
Alan says, in taking these films to the West, I keep getting this question, why isn't Isaac just making serious movies about poverty? And Isaac is like, well, I am poor, and I grew up in war, and I just want to make people laugh. So that I really admired that was in yeah. here. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Uganda, Andy. I I kind of love this. Um, I In fact, so much of it is clearly restaged events that happened between these two guys four years before this film was shot that I... I entertained the possibility that this was all made up. I had never heard of Wakaliwood. I checked afterwards, yes, this is real. And uh, I found uh, the love of movies is so strong in this film and the love of crowd-pleasing movies. Some of what they were doing reminded me of a cruder version of what Hong Kong was 40 years ago. Uh, with without any, but except they're producing these movies for two hundred dollars, and uh, you know, and he made like forty films in eleven years, something like that. And what we see of little clips from them are, in fact, really amusing. And it's kind of a great, you know, obscure guy makes it big it by the end because he goes to the Toronto Film Festival where the audience loves him. Yeah, actually, my boyfriend was at one of the screenings that took place right after Toronto where they took one of his movies to Fantastic Fest where they have video jokers, people who yell along with the movie, kind of like karaoke to emphasize the jokes. And he has always talked about how fun that screening was. And in this documentary, there was my boyfriend on screen sitting in the (laughs) front row. And I was like, Adam, you made it. You made it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. and so, so Andy, you really re- you highly recommend this documentary. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was, even though there is that sense that there is a patina of phoniness because it's all being restaged. Yeah. Four years, this, this guy spent, the American spent in Uganda and uh, acting as though that's not being staged. But I didn't really care because it, it, given that it does seem to be real for the most part, uh, I was totally charmed. That's and if great. you love movies, it's hard not to relate to this. Once Upon a Time in Uganda's Unrated. It's at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema, downtown L.A. Then next Friday the 14th, it expands uh, to more select theaters. The French drama The Passengers of the Night stars Charlotte Gainsborough. Uh, it's uh, directed by Mikael Ayers, who is the co-screenwriter of the film. Andy, what did you think of The Passengers of the Night? I wish I loved it more. I love Charlotte Gainsbourg, and uh, she, I mean, I, I've been reviewing her since her first big breakthrough film in America, which I interviewed her for, you know, 30 years ago when she was 18. And she's been, you know, you couldn't tell from that what she was going to become. She's been in melancholia and uh, a whole raft of 22 grams, whole raft of really wonderful performances. She's really got it. And this story, which is about her as a, a mother whose husband has left and she needs to get a job and she gets a job at a talk radio station. Uh, And one of the people who they're interviewing is this homeless girl. And she takes the homeless girl in, which of course is going to have all kinds of repercussions with her family, particularly the fact that she's got like a 16 or 18 year old son. And there's this, you know, hot 23-year-old experienced homeless girl. Uh, the dynamics are are quite interesting, but it's. I wish that it had been more engaging. It was interesting, but it just didn't have special. All right. The Passengers of the Night is unrated in French with English subtitles. It's at Lemley's Monica Film Center, Santa Monica. And the uh, 1963 Jean-Luc Godard film Contempt is in a 60th anniversary 4K restoration at Lemley's Royal in West L.A., uh, the cast led by Brigitte Bardot. Uh, Andy, quick thought on this. Very brief, though. Okay. Great Godard film, and for people who have not seen Godard films, this is one of his most accept, uh, accessible, probably the most, and it's beautifully restored. 
Uh, it's a wonderful story. Michelle Piccoli and Bridget Bardot are both great. Jack Palance is great. Fritz as, Long is in it. Fritz Long playing is himself, in it. right? Yes, playing yeah. himself and Jack Palance playing a really bullying producer who, again, reminded me of a recent president a lot. Contempt in a 60th anniversary 4K restoration, Lemley's Royal in West L.A., it's unrated. We want to take a moment to remember the tremendous actor Alan Arkin, who died just about a week ago at the age of 89. Uh, He, of course, won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Little Miss Sunshine. He was nominated a total of four times, his films including The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, Argo, for which he was Oscar-nominated, most recently the Netflix comedy series The Kaminsky Method with Michael Douglas, Catch-22, the list of films is long, uh, Andy. Yeah, uh, uh, he was great. He was great in everything he was in, uh, including sentimental films like Poppy, which I, you know, is not my cup of tea, but he always brought something. He also directed one of the great black comedies, Little Murders, based on a Jules Pfeiffer play, which I highly recommend if you can find it someplace. Uh, uh, I interviewed him a couple of years ago for Little Miss Sunshine, and I told him, you're going to win the Oscar, and he didn't believe me. Uh, but he he really just brought something to every part. He could be sort of a leading man, yeah, very talented. And you said a couple years ago that that was actually 16 years ago. Oh, <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. Time, time flies. Uh, some of the other films uh, that he uh, appeared in uh, were Ezard, uh, Edward Scissorhands, uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, The Slums of Beverly Hills. Uh, so many terrific performances. Wait Until Dark, of course, mm-hmm. as well. And The In-Laws and the pseudo-sequel, which I highly recommend, that nobody's seen called Big Trouble. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, For our critics uh, joining us in the first portion of it, Amy and Andy, I'm Larry Mantle. We have more to come. We'll be talking with the director and producer of the new documentary on YouTube coming up in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on four consecutive Fridays starting May 10th. More information at nortonsimon.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Earlier, we heard our critics review and endorse the documentary The YouTube Effect, directed by Alex Winter, produced by Gail Ann Hurd, and we're happy to have them both with us to talk about The YouTube Effect. Alex, let me start with you. Thank you so much for joining us. You've done a number of documentaries, uh, as well as a career as an an actor. I I enjoyed your Zappa documentary. Oh, thank you. It was terrific. Here you turn your attention on a very complex topic, and that Mm -hmm. is the origin story of YouTube, how it's evolved, and how the algorithm has sort of changed everything. Uh, What were some of the biggest challenges in putting together a 99-minute film which covers such vast territory? Um, Well, I think there's something probably broken about the way my brain works that I tend to like telling complicated stories about technology. Um, But I I don't find them fundamentally complicated because behind any technology are people and um, certain motivations, certain business needs. Uh, Gail had come to me uh, with some access to some YouTube folks and interest in telling the story. 
And uh, it was uh, of high interest to me because I've been tracking the growth of online communities since the beginning of the Internet. And YouTube, uh, which is really Google's media front end, is, is without parallel the largest platform on the planet in terms of people congregating online through media and, and other forms of communicating with each other. And that has big implications. The, what's amazing, of course, is how there's content for everyone on YouTube, because when I think of all my friends and family members who are heavy users of YouTube, their interests are so different from each other. Their politics are so different from each other, their life experiences, but they find stuff that, that's absolutely compelling for them there yeah i mean the whole world is there that's the thing and that's the thing that it's always i've always felt about the rise of technology in this revolution that we're in is that is that we tend to think of it as the other um i even sort of bristle at the i we, we need to talk about an algorithm and algorithms are important and they do matter um but it often becomes an excuse for not actually discussing the accountability and the fact that there are human beings back there um who have motives that aren't just algorithmic and there are implications that aren't just algorithmic. So uh, in this case, there's amazing things on YouTube because YouTube is the whole planet. And so it's it's broken down barriers. It's helped towards driving uh, diversity in terms of who we see and communicate with and who our entertainment figures are. Cultivated uh, talent. Way, well before the rest of the entertainment industry woke up to needing to become more diverse and more supportive of trans and, and other LGBTQ and other ethnicities and other cultures around the world. Uh, it's an enormous source of information, an enormous source of connection for people um, who may not have access to each other or information. But alongside something that vast um, comes negatives as well. We wanted to look into all of that. We're talking with Alex Winter, director of the YouTube Effect, Gail Ann Hurd, producer of the documentary. Uh, she's produced uh, Aliens, The Terminator, uh, The Abyss, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, and the hit AMC drama, The Walking Dead, and its successor. Gail, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, so share with us the idea that you brought to Alex. What was that access you offered? Well, uh Going back, I have been friends with a couple that I have known um, quite a while who uh, turns out that he was a co-founder of YouTube and he was the chief technology officer at the be very beginning, Steve Chen and his wife, Jamie. And just the most remarkable, kind people. And it fascinated me. And I wanted to find out how did this evolve? Where did it start, and how did it become what it's become? And, of course, through that process, very early on, he and his partners sold to Google. Uh, and that other aspect that was so important was to be able to speak with Susan Wojcicki, who at the time was the CEO mm -hmm. and literally was responsible for, for Google acquiring YouTube. So, so to me, there, there was not only a story there about... Um, the genesis of YouTube, but how it became the source of so much good in the world, but also drove too many people down violent conspiracy th theory rabbit holes. We're talking with the producer and director of the YouTube Effect with us on Film Week on LA is 89.3. So, Gail, let's, let's talk uh, about you know, those that took part in the documentary that you helped pave the way for, um, were they anticipating that there'd be a significant critique of Google and its business model in the film? I think we, we never intended to make a hit piece. That's just not who either Alex or I are. What we wanted to do was to tell the truth as we were able to see it about YouTube which is that it is the global meeting place, but it's a free platform for the most part. Yes, there are paid aspects of it. And in order to monetize the platform, people need to stay on the platform for a very long period of time. That's not just true of, of YouTube, it's any of the platforms that are free for users. And what we discover is that it is not cute pet videos that keep people online or content that makes you feel necessarily warm and fuzzy. 
it tends to be things that, in a Pavlovian way, yeah. drive rage and anger, um, and that's what and keeps And they're tapping into that. Yes. Well, and that, and that time spent watching, that, of course, is the metric that's used throughout entertainment. It, for radio, time spent listening. We measure how long do people stay with our program. Sure. And television ratings are so not surprising that Google's whole purpose would be to get you to spend as much time on the platform as possible. Yeah, when you think about it, there's a, a kind of... Uh, contradiction in terms of the the enormous innovation going on in technology and uh, the the ability to connect people on a scale that we've never seen in human history and at the same time the business models are very antiquated I mean they're, they go back to radio and newspaper um, and I think there's a collision there that's causing problems I think I mean a lot of people think that but if you have an ad-based model and you're a publicly traded company um, well then as Gail said you're you're going to be attracting eyeballs um, in many ways through a lot of the content that can be provocative, salacious, uh, completely uh, unethical, or even inciting violence, literal violence. Um, and then that's going to be helping to create massive profits that make the shareholders very happy who aren't going to be incentivized to change that business model. So I think that's a, that's a bit of the conundrum that we found ourselves in. Well, and one of the challenges is to determine, well, what is unsavory content? I mean, we can all agree that threatening someone's lives or, or fomenting violent activity, but where that line is drawn in content, um, we might not agree on that. So that really is the challenge as well. It can be. Um, it's only that what I found is that that, that can be the sort of the defense uh, and then you end up in this kind of, you know, there's good people on both sides thing, which was, you know, was said I think during the Charlotte riot um, where there weren't really particularly good people on both sides. Um, but if you look at, at the behavior, uh, I don't think you find that in many cases. I think that even recently within the last week or so, YouTube decided to stop pulling content that uh, promoted the stop the steal, you know, the 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 uh, the. Uh, conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was was invalid. And they're doing that right now as we cruise into the 2024 election. Um, there's no both sides in that, right? They could have continued to, to deplatform that. They made a decision not to. So I think that there are so many places where we could be doing better before we get to the legitimate, absolutely legitimate nuance that you're talking about. And there are, and we talk about this in the doc, there are very tricky aspects of fixing these problems that are trickier than some people think. You can't just abolish Section 230, um, which... Which provides protection to the platforms. It, as to though, all platforms. They're neutral, they're neutral bypasses. Exactly, the yeah. If you abolish that, you're killing the little guys, and you probably won't even do much damage to the big guys. Um, and content moderation is very hard. And there's a lot of really important and good stuff on, on these platforms, especially on YouTube, given the breadth. We'll continue our conversation with the director and producer of the YouTube Effect documentary that's out this week. Alex Winter, the director, Gail Ann Hurd, the producer. We'll be back in just one minute on Film Week. It's Film Week on L.A. at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. I remind you, if you missed the reviews of our Film Week critics from earlier in the hour, you can listen to Film Week whenever you want to. The very popular podcast is available wherever you get your audio. It's available on the LAist smartphone app as well as at LAist.com. Whenever you want to hear Film Week, make sure you don't miss a week of it. We're talking with the producer and director of The YouTube Effect, a new documentary about the social media platform that's just out. Uh, the film is at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in downtown Los Angeles. Gail Ann Hurd is the producer and Alex Winter, the director. Uh, Gail, um, you know, you've, you've had so many blockbuster films that have really defined your career as a producer. What led you to want to turn your attention to a documentary like this, so different than, than the films you've produced in the past? Well, this is actually my fourth documentary, uh, which the, the fact that it's not well known that I've done documentaries shows 
that there's a lot fewer column inches <laughs> given to, to that particular medium, which is why we're so thrilled that the film is going to be available in theaters. It'll be available streaming later on, but mm -hmm. now we're so excited that audiences well, get to see this. YouTube eventually, <laughs> of course it will, <laughs> along with the rest of all of you. But, but they're very important stories to tell. Um, generally, my films have all examined a similar theme, which is ordinary people thrust into extraordinary circumstances. Well, that actually continues here. Look at the ordinary people who became superstars, in fact, much bigger perhaps than the superstars we think of from traditional television and features. Uh, a lot of the people that are YouTube stars um, as influencers have an even greater following. And that's part of the phenomenon I wanted to examine with Alex. But also, what is it that, that drives people to violence, how many steps do you need to go through to being, let's say, a skeptic, to actually taking a gun and murdering people, um, let's say, in, in Christchurch, New Zealand? You have uh, a, a guy who had been uh, in uh, the alt-right and had uh, become disenchanted, found his way out, and now has a YouTube series that's devoted to, you know, questioning those contentions and helping people sort of exit uh, the extremist world. And it was really interesting to hear what he said. And, and I wonder, as more and more people have sort of uh, found the light, so to speak, if this is going to be a growing area of YouTube to sort of, you know, um, to to offer an alternative voice to people who might be drawn in by the extreme rhetoric. I certainly hope so, but I defer to Alex on yeah, this. Yeah, I think so, and I think that that's happened because of one of the positives of the platform, which is that it has a kind of a democratized uh, uh the system of how people can distribute their own media is not policed, right? Uh, in some ways, that can be a negative, and that's an area that they have done work to try to create, uh, you know, better uh, practices for keeping really dangerous people off the platform with limited success, I would say. But then you have a lot of people there who are doing incredible work. Uh, I would point to Natalie Wynn from ContraPoints, who one of the reasons I wanted Natalie was she's a huge influencer on the platform and, and in other areas now online, uh, but is very, very good at speaking to these issues to a big audience. And she was the one who actually was one of the people who was instrumental in getting Caleb sort of out of, out of the, the downward spiral. And they never, it's just like the rest of YouTube. They didn't know each other. She doesn't know him. He doesn't know her. And yet she had this massive impact, positive impact on his life. So I think we're seeing more and more of that. I think that, that there is, she says it, Natalie says it in the film, they didn't expect the company to come along and, and save it, right? They expected it to come from the people who are, are on platform or the users themselves. One of the things I found fascinating it was um, creators talking about their fear of, of going away at all, even a week off because uh, you worry out of sight, out of mind, and that you can lose your following that fast, which just gives you a sense of the kind of intensity of the platform. It does, and it also gives you a sense of its the sort of comparisons between it and early days of other forms of entertainment. You think of early radio, you think of the birth of rock and roll, you think of the the rise of the record industry, and 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 even things like vaudeville, where there was a kind of human, like almost desperation to to grab eyeballs. You think about like like what the Gum Sisters did, right? Like back in vaudeville days, and it, to me, it feels very similar. Like I've known the Smosh guys, Anthony and Ian for a long time and I know the Fine Brothers very well and some other influencers since they were kids really mm -hmm. and I'd never seen people work that hard <laughs> in my life and then they just worked around the clock and that was what they had to do in order to succeed it's there. like early television like it's, you're it, saying exactly like yeah everything's live it's all we gotta, hustle we gotta redo it for the west coast now exactly you know, it was it's like that if you go to the Fine Brothers studio like back in the day when they were when they were running that company it was it was mayhem it was organized mayhem but it just there was nobody sleeping we're talking with the director and the producer of the YouTube Effect new documentary screening at the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema downtown L.A. Gail Ann Hurd, the producer, and Alex Winter, the director. So, Alex, if you could wave a magic wand and you could change 
how YouTube deals with extreme content, what would you do? I think that the business, I think that it's really less about an algorithm and more about um, business models. I think it's about the incentive to, as Gail said, to grab and hold eyeballs and then to monetize those eyeballs. And so now these platforms are monetizing uh, violence. They're monetizing the rise of, of very serious terrorism. A lot of it is white supremacist terrorism that's causing havoc all over the world and a lot of havoc here at home in the U.S. So I think the models need to change. Now, I don't think any of these companies, which are monopolies, are going to police themselves. So I think it will ultimately be incumbent upon government to have successful antitrust, anti-monopoly law that begins to shift the way these companies work. And I know that sounds kind of grandiose, but I don't really see under the, any other way. I just don't think that's going to happen in any immediate future. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing, I think, would have to be a nonprofit model. I if, think it will. It's thinking about thinking about Google or Meta like U.S. Steel. I think that you have to look at the rise of big tech the same way that there was a rise of the industrial revolution that preceded it, and we have to deal with this revolution the same way we dealt with that one. Gail, or Standard Oil. Yeah, or Standard Oil. Yeah. So, so Gail, but, but of course, one of the advantages of the near monopoly is that everybody is there on the platform. If you broke it up a la Standard Oil and everybody's dispersed, it doesn't have that same sense of the world coming together. That's possible. I don't know if we know the answer to that just yet. I think that the Internet was so new that everyone congregated in these central silos. I'm not sure that's the future. I think what we've seen with Twitter, with the kind of Elon's Musk's disastrous takeover of Twitter that has sent most of that ecosystem scattering to other places, they're all finding each other in other places. And a lot of people who are newer to the Internet, I'm old, I've been around the Internet since it started. For us old folks, we're like, well, this is always the way it's been. Platforms b blow apart and you go find your people somewhere else. I think the general public is beginning to realize we don't have to just ride down one lane of the freeway in order to be together online. All right. Gail Ann Hurd, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Producer of the YouTube Effect, Alex Winter, director of the documentary as well. Thank you so much for joining us. The YouTube thank Effect, you. by the way, is screening at Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in downtown Los Angeles. Thanks so much for joining us for Film Week on LA at 89.3. Reminder, if you missed any part of the program, you can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts or at LAist.com. Have a wonderful weekend. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.